Carmen Berry is a uh, New York Times best-selling author, and uh, she confessed that uh, there was a point in her life when she stopped attending church because she looked at the lives of the people in the church she attended and thought, they're such a mess. I can't be a part of this. I can't be associated with people who are this messed up. Well, sometime later, she realized that she was wrong. And she felt compelled to uh, rejoin her spiritual community. And, and here's what she said about that. Here's, here's why. She said, I had overlooked one essential factor, that I'm as finite and flawed as everyone else. Now that's the truth. And uh, churches are not where perfect people gather. They are a place where broken people gather, especially those who know they are broken. And that's why God sent Jesus uh, to uh, remedy our brokenness, to bring us back into right relationship with him. And as Carmen discovered, everything and everyone is broken. In this series, in the book of Judges, we're seeing how God uses defective people. And as we mentioned last week, the brokenness in your life uh, may be from the pain, the disappointment that other people caused you, or what they have done to you. Uh, the, the brokenness in your life may be from your own past sins, your own failures, your own uh, wrong decisions and weaknesses. Or your brokenness may be simply from circumstances beyond your control because we live in a fallen world, a broken world. Whatever the cause of your brokenness, uh, God has a message of hope for you today. Uh, last week we began with the birth of Samson. We saw in Judges chapter 13 how uh, Samson uh, was brought into this world and saw how God promised a baby to the hopelessly infertile Mr. and Mrs. Manoah. And this child was more than the, the answer to one couple's brokenness, infertility. Uh, it was an answer that God would provide for the nation. He, he promised that this son, this boy, would be the deliverer for the broken nation Israel. Uh, because of their disobedience to God, they had been suffering for decades under the oppression of the enemy Philistines. Uh, Forty years they were being oppressed by the Philistines. And so uh, God promises uh, this son to be the deliverer. Uh, Israel needed a hero, and God provided Samson. But when we turn the page, and we turn that page from, from that promise in, in chapter 13 to Judges chapter 14, the story doesn't quite match up. It says this, verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. So this hero's first recorded words in the Bible are, I have seen the enemy and she is hot. That's my own paraphrase. Uh, with all the buildup of Samson's special birth, you might expect a better introduction. But instead of fixing what's broken, Samson is driven by hormones and bad judgment. Now, Timnah was a place that was about four miles away from Samson's village, but it was enemy territory. Uh, to get there, you walk down a ridge into the Sorak River Valley and then up the other side. And so geographically, Samson went down to Timnah. But the writer is telling us even more than that, uh, in that Samson, uh, this is about a decline in his spiritual life and perspective as well. Because the very first thing he's recorded as doing is leaving the land of Israel, the land of promise, and going to the land of the Philistines, the enemy. Uh, Samson went in the wrong direction. He left his friends 
to fraternize with the enemy. And the woman, woman that captures his attention plays for the other team. Now, this isn't just an Aggie Longhorn getting together. It's not that kind of uh, simplicity. Uh, she is one of the oppressors, uh, the, the enemy of Samson's people. And, and so what is he thinking? Well, the reality is he's not thinking. He's not listening either. As we continue in verse 3, his father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. So he dismisses his parents' concern and literally says, she is right in my eyes. That's literally what this says in the original language. She's right in my eyes. And if you know the book of Judges, you know the story, you know the significance of that phrase. Uh, the brokenness of that nation comes from people doing what is right in their own eyes rather than what is right before God. And, and uh, so now I just want you to notice that Samson was all about visual attraction. Uh, physical appearance was his only motivator here. He, he didn't even bother to meet this woman. Uh, he simply wanted her. And as Ray Pritchard says, when you go to the wrong place looking for the wrong thing with the wrong values in your heart, you end up rejecting the counsel of those who know better. And I would say that uh, a lot of our brokenness happens because we see what we want and we want it no matter what and no matter what anyone says. And often we make excuses to get what we want when we see it. Uh, some very common excuses. I give, give you many, but I'll just give you three excuses that I, I hear commonly from people. Uh, one is, the heart wants what it wants. So the 45-year-old guy gets enamored with someone 20 years younger, and it costs him his marriage. It impacts his kids. It brings pain and wreckage to that family, but he just shrugs it off and says, the heart wants what it wants. Or another excuse is, I have to be true to myself. That's the one I hate the most. Because I'm not quite sure what that means other than to excuse doing what I want. So it can simply be an excuse to cut somebody out of your life. Uh, it can be uh, an excuse to unleash your anger or to defend your behavior, to act selfishly, to ignore someone else's needs, someone else's feelings. I have to be true to myself. A third excuse is I deserve to be happy. And that idea can justify all kinds of things, from small to, to great things. Uh, it can be used to justify a lie, or an affair, or buying the car that you can't afford, or an abortion, or the reason you don't serve others or serve God. And, and I point these excuses out as I think they're all characteristic of Samson's attitude. Uh, he was infatuated with this woman, and he wanted her no matter what. Uh, and don't minimize this as, well, it's not such a big deal. It's kind of romantic, like Romeo and Juliet. It's nothing like that at all. Uh, Samson is ignoring God's clear instruction. Uh, Deuteronomy 7.3 is one of many examples in the Old Testament of warning Israel against intermarrying with the pagan nations around them. They were the people of God, and they were not to intermarry with the nations around them. Uh, and this caution carries over into the New Testament. Someone who loves Jesus should not enter into a binding relationship, marriage or otherwise, with someone who does not follow Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 6.14. Now, but what if you've already made that decision? What if you've already gone down that road? Uh, what if you ignored the counsel? 
What if you chose to give the heart what the heart wants? What if you already did what made you happy, only to realize it was wrong or sin? Uh, Is that the end? Or what if you watch someone you love go down that road? Your son, your daughter, your spouse, your grandchild, someone you care about has thrown their life away, has hurt other people, has ignored your advice, has rejected your help. What then? Well, I want you to keep that in mind when you read and see the very next verse of what happens in the Samson story. Verse 4. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. This verse is key to understanding the Samson story. The writer lets us in on a secret. And the secret is, Samson has made a mess, and God is going to use that mess. God's plan is going to be carried out. Not simply in spite of Samson's sin, but through Samson's sin. Now that does not mean that he did the right thing in chasing after a Philistine centerfold. That doesn't mean his parents did the wrong thing in in, uh, telling him this was trying to talk him out of it. Samson was wrong, but God brought something good anyway. Now that's a truth that's easily misunderstood and misapplied constantly in churches and otherwise. But the truth of Romans 8.28 teaches that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. Now, the truth of that statement is limited to a a certain group of people. It's not wide open for everybody. This truth that God brings about good uh, is only for those who belong to Jesus, whose love, uh, who, who know, understand the love of God, who've received that love of God, who've been called according to His purpose, Romans 8 tells us. It's only for those who belong to Jesus that this is true, and it teaches that God is at work in all things, not just some things, not just in, a, in certain things, but in all things for our good, even the worst of things. So nothing can frustrate God's purpose, not even my sin. Now that doesn't justify my sin, at all. There will be consequences for sin. the, The consequences that I experience in this life when I choose to rebel against what God wants. God used Samson's sin, but it cost Samson dearly in this life. Uh, Samson's story, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, ends tragically. Uh, the consequences were severe, but it didn't stop God's plan. And we'll talk more about that, but let me finish this part of the story first. Because on the way back to Timnah to meet the lust of his life, something odd happens. There's several odd things in this chapter. This is just one of them. Samson's walking through a vineyard, and he's attacked by a lion. Verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Now, We're reading this today and hearing this today, and it's not a shock to probably any one of us here. Because even if you don't know the Bible, you're probably pretty familiar with the fact that Samson has legendary strength. Uh, That's commonly known, whether you know anything about the Bible or not. But imagine, if you could, hearing this story for the very first time. There has been absolutely no hint that Samson is a strong man. Not a hint. God's promise was not that his parents would have a muscle-bound he-man, just that they would have a son. And so this is a twist in the plot that uh, should shock us as much as I believe it stunned 
Samson. So I want, when you picture Samson, erase from your mind the image of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Just put it out of your mind. All right. Samson did not pump iron. He probably, he's, he's not a he-man built in that way. He probably didn't have six-pack abs. Uh, he was an ordinary-looking Israelite. Uh, but confronted by a lion... The Spirit of the Lord suddenly overpowered him. His supernatural strength came from God for God's purpose. The, the, the verb form here, when it, when it uses that phrase, came upon him, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, that, that verb means that the Spirit rushed into him. That he didn't ask for it. He didn't expect it. As the lion rushed at him, the Spirit rushed into him, and Samson ripped it in half, as if you would rip a young goat, which I've not done that either, so I'm not sure the comparison there. But then he kept it a secret. He kept it a secret. Why? Well, I think he didn't know what to make of the sudden superpower he had. And he's stunned by this. He's bewildered by it. So he says nothing to anyone. And then verse 7, then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. There was a number one song back in the 60s with the lyric, Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? I think that's where Samson's at here. Uh, He only looked at this woman before, and he found her hot enough to marry. He swiped right immediately on the picture alone. And now he's actually talked to her. And he thought, well, she's still great. And so the wedding is on. And what follows is yet another odd incident. Verse 8. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. In it was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it, but he did not tell them that he'd taken the honey from the lion's carcass. So bees had found a home in this carcass that had been dried by the desert sun. Samson scrapes it out with his hand. Uh, Messy. But, you know, honey was a treat in the ancient world. It was was a treat. You took it wherever you could find it. So he does that. He enjoys that. He shares it with mom and dad, but doesn't tell the whole story of where he got it. So there's another secret. And so Samson planned a pre-wedding feast. It was a seven-day drinking party. Uh, after which the couple would sleep together to consummate the marriage, the official part of the relationship. And as part of the entertainment for that seven-day drinking party, Samson created a riddle. And he made a bet with 30 of the men who attended, and he said, uh, I solve this riddle that I give you, and I will give you 30 sets of, of uh, linen and 30 sets of clothes. And if you can't solve the riddle, then you give the same to me. So linen was basically underwear, so he's promising underwear, and then the set of clothes was your best outfit, and the average person only had one of those, so so he's promising an entire wardrobe, basically, to 30 people. And so they accept it, and uh, verse uh, 13, tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not give the answer. All right. It's difficult, really, when you look at this, to imagine how anybody could guess this riddle. I mean, it's just, it's not something that you could solve with brain power. You basically had to see this. It's not as simple as, like, what goes tick tock, woof, woof? A watchdog. You know, I can solve that if you give me enough time. It's not like that at all. Uh, but uh, it's something only Samson has seen and probably only Samson could ever solve. But no matter what, he wins. Because just in this, uh, 
th- this story is a way of bragging about what he did to the lion, in effect. So they, they don't get it. Uh, verse 15, on the fourth day, so they've been at it for four days, he said to Samson's wife, wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to rob us? The, uh, the word translated coax here, the Hebrew word is patah, and it, and it means to flatter, to deceive, to persuade a simple-minded person. So saying, you know, get your simple-minded husband to tell you what the deal is. Samson was coaxable because he's driven by hormones and ego. That really sums up Samson's whole uh, life mission statement as, as far as he can see. Hormones and ego. And it keeps costing him. It's, it's a, a flaw that he really never admits to, and it keeps costing him throughout his life. And, and so with this, I, I feel for this poor woman who's now threatened her life and her family's lives, and she plays Samson to get this. Uh, verse 16, uh, then Samson's wife threw herself on him sobbing, you hate me, you don't really love me, you've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father and mother, he replied, so why should I explain it to you? So this uh, very clearly implies that Samson places a higher value on his parents than on this woman who's about to become his wife. He has no idea what a healthy marriage relationship involves, which the Bible says uh, means leaving your parents and cleaving, being glued to your spouse. She responds, as you can imagine, her desperation. Uh, verse 17, she cried the whole seven days of the feast. What, what a pre-wedding party this must have been. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. So I would say there's some indication that this poor woman is probably just as immature and relationally unhealthy as Samson is, but she is desperate for an answer. She finally wears him down. She passes the answer along, and they go to Samson with the the news. Verse 18, before sunset on the seventh day, and it's like right at the end here, the men of the town said to him, what is sweeter than honey? What's stronger than a lion? And Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Now, granted, heifer, not a good way to speak of your intended at any point. But uh, you, got, you have to appreciate what Samson is actually saying here. He, he knows they cheated to solve this riddle because it was impossible to solve. Now, the heifer was proverbial for being untamed and stubborn, and it was not ever used for plowing. And so he's saying, you could not have solved this without breaking the rules, without doing the wrong thing. And of course, he knows how they did it because the only person who knew the answer was his uh, future wife. And so out of uh, spite, he leaves her at the altar. They do not consummate the relationship. They never enter into the bridal chamber. So they are not married. And the last verse of the chapter tells us that the father of the bride then gave uh, his daughter away to the best man. Uh, So the the groom's gone. Well, here's the next best man. We will put him. Uh, Why does he do that? Well, to save her from disgrace and also probably because he doesn't want to waste all that money on the caterer, the band, and the open bar. And so we just get all this done at the time. So uh, just as a little sidelight, I want to point out to you, uh, Dr. Judy Orloff uh, lists the differences between lust and love. And for example, signs that it's lust are you're totally focused on a person's looks and body. You'd rather stay on a fantasy level and not discuss real feelings. And you're lovers, but not friends. And on the other side, for love, you want to spend quality time together other than sex. You honestly listen to each other's feelings and want to make the other happy. And he or she motivates you to be a better 
person. And I would add to that that lust can leave just as fast as it arrived, while love determines to stay no matter what. Love endures. That's what real love does. So Samson was in lust. Look what he does next, verse 19. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house. So here's a very curious part of this story. I mean, I I understand his anger. I understand that he is I guess sense enough he's going to travel 23 miles away uh, to another Philistine city and kill 30 strangers and take their clothes to pay off his bet. But what really gets me here is that behind his empowerment is the Spirit of the Lord. Again, the Spirit of the Lord rushed in on him here, empowered him. Despite his, uh, his sin and his wrong choices, God gave him power to do this violent thing. Now, remember, the Philistines were the invading army, and they depressed Israel for 40 years. God was working to deliver his people. This is how he's using the broken vessel, the cracked vessel Samson, to carry this out. God's using this mess that Samson made to provoke confrontation. So what happened is that Samson experienced the Spirit's power, but not the Spirit's control. He's empowered by the Spirit, not controlled by the Spirit. And that can happen to any one of us. The Bible teaches that those who trust in Christ alone are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That when you admit that you're broken in sin, that you are lost and separated from God, and that you cannot save yourself, and you believe in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, that that is the only remedy to put your trust in Christ alone, then you are saved. And the moment you turn to Christ alone, you become a temple of God. Uh, God's by His Spirit, lives in you. And this marks you as God's possession. This guarantees you all that God has promised. And for those who belong to Jesus, the Spirit of God can never leave you. However, you can fight against the Spirit's control. You can keep from allowing the Spirit from, from controlling you. You can make sinful choices and express sinful attitudes and dwell on sinful thoughts. And that's why the Bible commands Christians to be filled with the Spirit. You have the Spirit in you, allow that Spirit to control you. That's Ephesians 5.18. Uh, when you resist that control, then you're like Samson. You're capable of great accomplishments and incredibly stupid mistakes at the same time. God won't stop being God when you choose to rebel. God's plan won't fall apart when you refuse to do your part. God is still at work. And this is how some Christians can accomplish great things for God and yet fall into sin and make a mess out of their lives. As a uh, young pastor, I was invited to attend a small gathering of pastors at a, uh, a large church led by a pastor that I admired. He was nationally and internationally known. And uh, I, I was, it was powerful to hear him share about ministry and how he organized his time. And I was impressed with all the ways in which God was using him and his ministry around the world. And so I went home and I, was all, I, I changed some of the practices of my life based on what I'd heard. So one of the things I did, I started getting up two hours earlier than I typically got up simply to pray and to journal. And let me tell you, I hate journaling till this day. But I hated it then, but that was got up because he journaled. So I, I got up early to do that. And uh, I, I, I scheduled time with my wife. 
because he talked about you need to not only take care of your primary relationship with God and, and keep that strong, but you need to take care of your primary human relationships. That's your wife and children. I didn't have children, but I had a wife. And uh, so I put in my calendar PR, which stood for primary relationships. I could have written Amy. It's only one more letter, but I did that. And so I scheduled every weekly time that was just the two of us together. And, and so made some changes in, in, in doing that. And within a year, it became public that this pastor confessed to a long-term involvement with another woman. While teaching others about strengthening relationships with God and wife, he was cheating. While leading a church with worldwide impact, he was in adultery. Now, did that mean that everything was worthless? No. It meant that he was empowered by the Spirit, but not allowing the Spirit to control him. Thankfully, he repented, he saved his marriage, he stepped out of ministry, and it was eventually restored to ministry. God will work out his purpose with us or in spite of us. Now, does that mean we live however we please? Absolutely not. God calls us to live holy lives, to repent when we fail, uh, because there are con- he will discipline us in this life. We'll experience this discipline. What good father doesn't discipline his children, the Bible says. And, but as we follow him, he promises peace and joy and reward. Now, here's the lesson that I want you to grab from this chapter, uh, that God is greater than your sin and failure. God's greater than your sin and failure. You don't have to fear that because you messed up in the past, there's no hope. Your sin and rebellion will hurt. They will bring consequences. They'll bring discipline from God, but God will still accomplish his plan. And, And this chapter of Samson's life is filled with secrets. That's why I called it secrets. He killed a lion. He didn't tell anyone. He found honey. He didn't say where he got it. He made a riddle. Nobody could guess it. He didn't reveal the answer to his parents. He didn't tell his wife until she sobbed for seven days. Secrets. Secrets. But you know what the biggest secret of all? Is the one that supports the entire story. That while Samson's parents are disappointed in their son's sinful choices, they don't know that God has a secret. And that secret is that the Lord is using Samson's sinful mess for great good. It won't be pretty. It won't be painless, but God's plan will succeed. His will is done, even when we we shake our heads as to how he does it. He uses ungodly leaders and senseless tragedies. Uh, God uses ministries that are doctrinally unsound and people that are impure. Even our failures will not frustrate the purposes of God. He's not limited by our flaws and imperfections. I found a a book called The Blind Jump, and it's the biography of a British intelligence agent during World War II. Let me just share with you uh, one incident from that book. It it happened in 1948 when uh, uh, they were trying to smuggle guns into Palestine to arm the Jews in the Arab-Israeli war. And the problem was, how are they going to get all these guns and ammunition past the security checkpoints and into the hands of Israeli soldiers? They came up with a plan. First, they they loaded the, the crates of arms and ammunition on board a ship called the Nora, and the crates included 200 machine guns, 4,500 rifles, 5 million rounds of ammunition. And then they covered up all those crates with sacks of onions and potatoes, 600 tons of smelly produce. And the, the agent said, the stench of the onions and the smell of rotting potatoes seemed to me as sweet as the sweetest smelling perfume because it was the first time in the history of Palestine that such a large quantity of new, modern, polished, oiled weapons was about to reach the country. 
And so when the security officers boarded the ship to check it out, they poked around the sacks of onions and potatoes, and the stench was so bad that they were gone in a hurry. And the leader of the Israeli army at that time was David Ben-Gurion, and upon receiving the secret stash of arms hidden under all that rotting produce, he sent this message. The goods have arrived in time and saved Jerusalem. Now on the basis of the Samson story, I ask you to consider this. Maybe God has a secret hidden beneath the stench of 600 tons of onions. As painful and wrong as the failure in your past, it does not have to stop God's plan. As agonizing as the mistakes your loved ones are making, as much as it might cost them, as much as it might cost you, it will not bankrupt God's plan. Underneath all the stench and rotting decay, there's a purpose of a faithful God and His plan is unstoppable. We gather this morning to celebrate just exactly that around the table of the Lord. This table is the greatest example of what God has done for us. His love so great that He sent Jesus into this world to be the sacrifice for our sin. If you have placed your trust in Christ, then you are welcome around this table today. For with this bread and this cup, we remember the sacrifice that He made for us. In a moment, uh, there will be uh, someone at each of these six tables, four here in the back, and uh, four here in the front, and two in the back. Uh, at the tables are a loaf of bread and uh, a cup of juice. Uh, I encourage you, as you come forward, whenever you feel that, at the table nearest you, to break off that bread from the loaf, reminding us that we are one loaf in Christ, and then dip that into the juice and eat and drink in remembrance of what Christ has done. Uh, The cross is the greatest example of how sin and failure cannot stop God's plan. Uh, The enemy tried everything to stop the plan of God. And he thought he had won in the death of Jesus. But that was just the prelude to the greatest victory of all. So I invite you, if you are in Christ in these moments, to come forward and to celebrate and remember what God has done for you.